This is a podcast from Minute Media. Welcome to the Pride of London podcast, part of the fan-sided podcast network. Please welcome your hosts, Gabe Henderson and Travis Tyler. Hello, everybody, and welcome into the Pride of London podcast. My name is Gabe Henderson, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host and co-editor, Travis Tyler. We've got a lot to get to today, so we're just going to jump right into it. So the first thing we're going to talk about is obviously the big win over Spurs in the first leg of the Carabao Cup semifinal. So there was a lot to dissect from this game. Travis, what are your initial thoughts? Uh, even though we kind of rotated a little bit, not a not a whole lot, and it was technically a formation change depending on how we want to cut that, we absolutely battered Spurs in that game. Um, you know, obviously Tottenham isn't the same team that they used to be, and they seem to be getting worse with each manager, even though Conte's got them firing for a little bit, but you know, they were just completely unsettled by us changing the plan, basically. They weren't prepared for us to do something other than 3-4-3, which is understandable because we haven't. We haven't really changed anything under Tuchel. So, yeah, this really got Conte off guard. And, you know, just going into the second leg, you know, that's a really difficult spot to be because he doesn't know what to expect now. He doesn't know if we're going to go back to what we were doing, the 3-4-3, or if we're going to do this same hybrid four at the back, three at the back thing. So, I mean, he, he's got his work cut out for him. There, there aren't away goals in the League Cup semifinal. So, you know, you, you kind of wish we had gotten a little more. I know that's greedy, but we created the chances to get more. You kind of wish we got more just to really put this to bed because – Without the away goals, that one goal could really flip everything on its head. Like, you could really change the momentum. But, yeah, really good performance with us mixing things up in a really positive way that we probably should have done earlier. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, we'll talk more about the um, formational mix-up in Conte's dilemma when we preview the second leg here in a little bit. But uh, I I thought it was – just a really dominant performance from Chelsea. I think like Conte said after the game, you really saw the quality gap between the two sides in this one. And, you know, it, while it, this was a rare performance where Antonio Conte got tactically outclassed, it didn't necessarily feel that way because while it's always nice to beat Spurs, I mean, you know that a Conte team is capable of anything in a one-off game. So especially with some of the quality players they have. That being said, the big news coming out of Spurs over the last few days is that Son is probably going to miss the rest of the month. So that not only impacts our game in the second leg, but also our Premier League game against them. So that's huge news. Um, But then one of the other things I want to talk about is, and like you said, Spurs seems to get worse with every manager they get. And this is where I really thought Conte's quotes after the game were spot on. I don't think he's necessarily got them playing worse than Nuno or other managers. I mean, obviously he's had them playing well. I think what he is doing is setting them up for a long-term transition because, you know, at this point, 
they're in a worse spot than Chelsea always is. They're basically taking the Chelsea approach to the manager position over the last few years. And they're firing everyone just because they're not doing well, but then the board isn't putting them in a place to succeed. So, you know, you run out of options and that's not because you run out of top class managers to hire. If you fail with Antonio Conte, you've got nowhere else to turn to because you're going to have all these managers saying, well, I don't want the job if X, Y, and Z couldn't succeed and they got sacked right away. So I think to kind of wrap it all up, what Conte is doing there is he's changing the culture and he's taking it on the chin in the short term for better success in the long term. So I think in a weird way, them losing in that fashion was the best thing for them, whether or not they can come back. It's yet to be seen, but it's doubtful. But from a Chelsea point of view, it was dominant. But like you said, we only got two goals. So we definitely could have gotten more for the performance that we put on. So those, those were my massive takeaways from the game. Yeah, I mean, when you're getting 19 shots, 16 chances created, and four of those are big chances, only two goals isn't really something you want to write home about. But, I mean, we also had a lineup that had Malong Sar in it, who easily had his best game up to that point for Chelsea. Uh, Saul, who is I, – I don't know what happened, but all of a sudden he seems to be legit. You know, other than the fact that he's now the deepest midfielder more often than not, I have no idea how he has flipped the switch like this. I still don't think we're going to sign him. But, you know, it's a whole lot better than it was having him as just that guy there. Um, And, yeah, Romelu Lukaku up top. You know, up top with Kai Havertz, any, any kind of pair with Lukaku seems to be what works. You know, Lukaku wasn't able to score – uh, we, me and you had the conversation about how I felt Kai Havertz's goal was kind of own goalie, but, you know, just, it, it seems like we have so many strikers and they all kind of work better in pairs and Tuchel seems to have come to that conclusion. He came to that conclusion earlier in the season, but now we're seeing it with different shapes around it and, you know, how we're maintaining that two up top. So yeah, lots of interesting things that, Definitely threw Conte for a loop, but threw a lot of us for a loop. And, you know, Hakeem Ziyech, his role was easily the linchpin of all of it, how he was able to transition, you know, in and out of where he needed to be to keep it to a back three and then change it to a, a back four. I mean, without him, I don't know if this formation would have worked as well because he was the one really moving up and down and pushing the different changes. Yeah, and this really does kind of bring the question to the forefront. You know, everyone's been kind of talking about it all season, especially now with the wingback injuries. And I know we've talked about it on this podcast a lot. Um, but we finally saw the back four against Spurs. So, and there's a couple interesting points there. Like you said, Hakim Ziyech suddenly looks more comfortable and gets more involved when we play like this. And so, you know, it's all about personnel and what Tuchel decides to do in the long run. But uh, personally, I think a back four could be a viable option 
here and there. I don't think we'll make a full-time switch to it. I think we're still in agreement that the 352 is the best formation. We'll get to that later when our good friend RJ um, asks us one of his questions. But what did you make of the whole back four? You know, I thought, um, like you said, Malang Sar was really good. And I thought Antonio Rudiger in a central role, you know, there's been all these questions over the last few months of, well, do we let him leave? Because we don't necessarily know what he can do in a back two. So I guess just what were your thoughts on the back four and how do you think we played? Yeah, I mean, I think the main reason it worked is because it didn't always stay as a back four, which, you know, that was what me and you were talking about before. Like, it doesn't have to stay in one shape. You know, it it basically would end up with Rudiger as the centermost mid, Saar as the left center mid, Osvaldo Cueta as the right center mid, and Ziyech would drop all the way back to be like a right wing back if he needed to. He didn't always need to. And – you know, that's really not all that different than what Willian used to do. You know, Willian used to come all the way back with Ivanovich kind of tucking in next to Terry and Cahill. Like, it's the same thing. It's just, you know, it, it, I guess it's a little more fluid than what we've become used to in the meantime. And, um, yeah, I mean, it, it didn't necessarily defend as a back four, but it frequently turned into one when the situation called for it. And this is definitely something Tuchel did at PSG a lot. And, you know, I would say most famously he did it in the Champions League final. Uh, uh, No matter where Bayern Munich had the ball in that final against PSG, PSG would always have a line of four right in front of that, right, right in front of wherever the ball was. So, you know, there were times where, they were 4-3-3, and then there were other times where they had shifted into 3-4-3, and times even still they were in a 3-3-4. You know, they were just trying to create as many bodies between wherever Byron had the ball and where they wanted to get the ball, and that's kind of how it was working for us. ZH was trying to make it 5 or 4 and get behind and stop Spurs from being able to play through. But none of that's going to happen if you don't have that solid base where, you know, Malang Sar, he's able to perform in that system of, you know, sometimes he's in, sometimes he's out. So he has to be thinking, okay, can I press this time? Do we have the numbers to do that? And that's all going to change between four at the back and three at the back. Uh, but overall, it worked really, really well. I would honestly say the main thing about it was probably in possession where – you know, Tuchel loves to get, create these boxes in midfield, and usually he'll create them with the two center mids and the two tens, which, you know, again, he, he did that here, but it's the role of those two tens and those strikers and those center mids and how they're changing, moving through positions to not only maintain those different boxes that they can use in possession – but also defend solidly. So it was really cool to see that change finally come. I mean, we've had the players for it for a long time. I didn't really necessarily expect ZH to be the one moving in and out of wing back, but, you know, this has all been things that Tuchel's done before and he's been thinking about, and hopefully we keep seeing more of, because we saw something totally different against Chesterfield. 
Yeah. And, you know, um, just to talk about the versatility between the players, it's easy to look at. And this really isn't a cop out when I say this, because you can look at the whole team and say, well, Frank Lampard constructed it uh, other than guys like Lukaku and Azpilicueta and a few others. But when you look back at someone like Malang Sar, he was brought in under Frank Lampard and he really is of that Frank Lampard mold. What he looked for in a player and the same applies for Ziyech, too. What he looked for in a player was someone who could play multiple different positions in multiple formations. And I think that's benefiting us now because when you look at a guy like Malangsar, he's perfect for that formation where it's fluid between a back three and a back four because he can play as a left center back, he can play as a center back, and he can play as a left back. So I, I think that fluidity is really important. And I think it just – the performance against Spurs – went on to validate what we all thought. And, you know, we we knew this team could play like that. And obviously you and I have talked about it before. I think it was on the last podcast. We talked about Nagelsmann's Bayern and how they did all that. And we've seen Tuchel do it before, like you said, in the Champions League final he, he managed with PSG. And let me just say, I hope and pray that we never play against Bayern Munich with a line as high as he did in that game because that was suicide defending. But I think we could see more of this as we go forward. And I think that also comes back full circle to how you and I discussed whether or not Tuchel's 3-4-3 was getting figured out. So it'll all obviously depend on the personnel we have and all of those factors. But I think the one thing that it's good to know now is we have options. It's not just a 3-4-3 or 3-5-2. And so now we've got stuff like the three diamond three we played against Juventus with, or the four at the back that we played against Spurs with. And the, those aren't bad teams. Those are legitimate squads that we went out and played a different and uh, unique formation against. So it's just a nice little trick to have in our back pocket. But as you alluded to, there was also another match over the last few days, um, the long awaited match against top of the National League, the English 5th Division, Chesterfield. It went just about as we all expected and kind of breaking my arm, patting my own back here. But in our Pride of London predictions, I think I got just about everything right with this one, including the score and when Chesterfield would score. But the game finished 5-1. Um, let's just get some of your initial thoughts and then we'll get into the more specific talking points. Yeah, I mean, that was really what we expected, right? We expected us to go out and just completely bombard them and score a bunch of easy goals. And, I mean, this was a strong, strong lineup to send out against the team 90, 91 spots below you in the table. Like, we, we could very much have rotated and, you know, played several of the academy kids and still come out just fine. Um. So, yeah, I think that was kind of the intention was get it done in the first half and then make the subs we need to make to get people match fitness, get people debuts, and just let them, you know, feel out the rest of the game after we've kind of killed it off. Um, you know, I find it strange personally that you you even name guys like Webster and um, Simons to the bench and not use them, and instead you bring on guys like Barkley 
and Lewis Baker, like those guys aren't going to be at the club in the future. They're not our future. But if you're playing them over the guys that could be our future, none of those guys are going to be at the club. And all of a sudden, you know, it's kind of looking like last summer where Tino Livermento left and Margouet left and Louis Bate left. And, you know, maybe they would have got a chance. Maybe they wouldn't have. But if they don't see the chance there at all, maybe because they're on the bench in a 5-1 win on the FA Cup against the National League side, maybe that's the moment they decide they're going to try their luck elsewhere. And I hope that that's not the case because we also had the other the other side of it where Lewis Hall played the game and he was fantastic. You know, he made he made of the match for me. Um, he's he was out of position. He he's naturally a midfielder and he ended up playing as the left center back. And you couldn't tell at all. He looked completely comfortable in that role. Which I mean, that's kind of expected of a good youth player against a National League team when you're surrounding them with guys like Timo Werner and Lukaku. Like they should be completely fine in no matter what role you put them in. But I mean, I, I was listening to the straight out of Cobham Pod earlier, and they mentioned that he had been on like five different Chelsea teams this year. That he had started at like U16 and just has moved up and up this season. So. You know, maybe he's one to keep an eye on for down the road. I've seen some say he means us having him means we don't need a wing back. I don't think it necessarily means that. But, you know, if you can find a spot for him, ideally in midfield, which is his natural position, I mean, imagine how much better he could have been if he was doing what he does every youth game. So, you know, really good to see him. And we can get more into the tactical stuff in a second here. Yeah, for sure. And I thought you hit the nail right on the head. Those were the two main talking points for the team selection and Lewis Hall's performance. Obviously, he put in a man of the match shift and he looked really comfortable, which is surprising on one hand and not so surprising on the other. You know, on the one hand, you have a 17 year old who's making his senior debut, who has never played left back or left wing back at any level. And that's what that's what really kind of shocked me a little bit was the fact that he was played there. And obviously, as we've seen, he, he can, I'm not like you said, going to be one of those people who say, Oh, we don't need a wing back. Now we don't need to go get a left back. We, we got Lewis hall. It's a national league side. He should be putting in those performances against them. But that said, you have to kind of commend the performance that he put in given the f- circumstances, you know, um, but on the other hand, you're not so surprised because this is another Cobham player who is extremely talented. So I thought it was really positive on that front. But then, like you said, on the team selection, I noted this pregame. I defended it postgame, and I'll stick to it now. Some of those guys should have not should not have been named. There's no reason for Romelu Lukaku to be on the pitch against Chesterfield. You know, if he gets hurt instead of scores, we are absolutely kicking ourselves because we've got Spurs and Man City coming up. So I don't know. I, I thought it was good to get him on the on the score sheet again. Uh, I, I just don't I, I can't rationalize playing him in this game. 
Whereas someone like Timo Werner, he was out with COVID for a while. He was out with an injury for a while. I can see playing him. And, you know, from the moment that Thomas Tuchel said pregame that we have to respect Chesterfield, I kind of had this feeling that he was going to play. And I don't hate that one as much. But some of the guys that were in that team, like Mateo Kovacic, there's no reason to play him against Chesterfield. There really isn't. He, he didn't. You know, and this is not to slight Mateo Kovacic's performance. I thought I think everyone for Chelsea played well, except for some of the subs. But we don't need Mateo Kovacic to beat Chesterfield. He didn't do anything to help us beat Chesterfield. Um, so yeah, that's that's just my little rant on team selection. But the one interesting note before we wrap it up on the Chesterfield match, because there's. Uh, as you know, like not much we can really say about this game. It's a, a National League side. We should be battering them. We're not going to commend this team for their performance. We'll sit here and praise Lewis Hall, but not the whole team. But uh, just before we move on, we did play with inverted wingbacks in the game. And I know you love all this tactical stuff. So it was Hakim Ziyech on the right and Callum Hudson-Odoi on the left. So before we move on, just kind of break down what the inverted wingback means and whether or not you see a future for these guys in those roles or with inverted wingbacks in the team. Yeah, I mean, basically it just means that they're tasked with tucking in more, cutting in more than a normal wingback would. And we've seen Chilwell, well, we saw Chilwell do that quite a bit towards the end right before he got injured. We haven't seen Reese James do it nearly as much. Reese James tends to stay wider. Alonzo stays wider. But, you know, with Chilwell, he would come in and, you know, join the midfield pair. That would free up whoever is ahead of him to go a little wider. Um, you know, usually we don't really see the wingbacks get central unless they're in the box already, and that's usually what Alonzo will do. Um, but it kind of goes back to that box thing I was mentioning earlier. If they're if they're tucking in, you know, around the center mids, they're either, they're either going to free those center mids to go forward and create a box that way, or they're going to come in front of the center mids and make a box with the two tens we were playing, which were Timo Werner and Pulisic. Uh, Pulisic's role was kind of floaty, so that's not necessarily what we did too often, but it, it just gives us another angle. And, I, I mean, it's Chesterfield. We're probably not – going to try this against Manchester City. You know, back back when Guardiola joined the league, he tried the whole inverted fullback thing because of the fullbacks he had were slow but good on the ball. So he wanted them coming into the midfield. I don't know if it's necessarily something we'll see long-term, but, I mean, if it opens up options for, you know, like Hakeem Ziyech to play wingback more or Hudson Odoi to play wingback in a different way than he used to, I think that's good just because of how our wingback situation is currently, even if we still got to work it around this whole idea of the four, two, 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 like we saw against Tottenham. So di different ideas that we can try here that we're experimenting with and a pretty crazy month to be doing it in. But if you're going to experiment, do it against a really bad Tottenham team and Chesterfield and later Plymouth and I guess Tottenham midweek too. Yeah, for sure. So I guess just one follow-up question on that. 
Uh, do you think the inverted wingback has more to do with the individual's ability, like the Callum Hudson or Doys, the Ben Chilwells and the Hakim Zietjes, or do you think it has to do with position? Like, you know, we've seen either the left center back or the right center back get forward more often. Do you think uh, the left wing back is tasked with getting into the middle more and that's why we don't see James do it? Or do you think it's up to individual ability? Yeah, I think it was because Chilwell was better at cutting in and helping out midfielders is why we saw that happen. But also James is better out wide crossing it in. You know, James has a much better pass than Chilwell does. But maybe Chilwell is a, a little more comfortable in those tight spaces than James is. And, I mean, that's that's completely understandable and natural. Um, you know, if Ziyech is the one cutting in, you know, it would be the same thing, really. I mean, he, he's a number 10 by trade, really. I mean, at Ajax, he did a lot of that. So it, it's not it's not necessarily that they need to be just wide or just inside. It's, you know, getting the right combination of players that they're all comfortable with what the other one's going to do, you know. Maybe Chilwell's more comfortable coming central than Alonzo is, so you're going to use them differently. Or maybe when – it's Georgino there instead of Mateo Kovacic. Maybe they're going to do different things there too. And you know, part of that's if you're looking at who our midfield pivot is, there's usually one that's always dropping deeper. And the one that's always dropping deeper, if they give that space for the wing back to cut in, then you're basically creating a midfield three like we've seen before. So, yeah, it's, it's just about kind of getting the right fit of players around each other and, you know, letting them do what they want to do naturally. Yeah. Awesome. And I mean, I think it's like you said, a good way to mask those absences while we don't have guys like Ben Chilwell, but still kind of play the same shape. So that'll do it for our recaps of the Chesterfield and Spurs wins. After the break, we will talk about the winter transfer window, which just opened up, and we will preview the second leg uh, against Spurs. So we will be right back. All righty. So as we mentioned before the break, the winter transfer window is now open. It will be open for another three weeks. And if I'm going to be honest, I thought Chelsea would be a little more active in the early days, given the injuries. Um, I know Marina Granovskaya and the board don't usually work quickly. They like to let things marinate and they like to get the best deals. I just didn't see them doing that this month. I I figured at least one player would be in by now due to the injury and COVID crisis we had early on, but that's not the case right now. So um, obviously the big storyline is the wingbacks given Ben Chilwell's out for the year and Reese James will be out for another five, seven weeks. Um, so at the time of recording, the latest news with Luca Dean is Chelsea's pulled out of the race, according to Fabrizio Romano and Everton and Aston Villa and talks for a move there. Uh, I think that's a really good move for Aston Villa. I think they're doing really good business lately. And personally, I hate to see Chelsea miss out on this. Um, the reports from Fabrizio Romano and others like Matt Law and The Athletic and all those close to the situation are saying that Chelsea's currently working on bringing Emerson back from uh, Lyon. 
um, recalling him and even maybe paying the French side to let him come back. So before we get into the other positions, Travis, what are your thoughts on both uh, losing out on Luca Dean and Emerson potentially coming back? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I, I've since all this started, I've basically said, like, I'd rather we use the players we already have on the books. When I said that, I didn't really think about Emerson coming back because I didn't really think the club would think about it or Tuchel would think about it. I mean, Tuchel played Emerson like five times. Two of those were starts, and they were at center back. So, I mean, I, I completely understand that he likes that Emerson is – someone that he already knows, someone that he's worked with before, and that's a powerful thing. But you know, looking at it from like Marina's point of view, here's a player we've struggled to sell off that we have a club on the hook for, and now we got to take them off the hook to help ourselves. Like, it's not ideal. And, you know, maybe we do need to kind of like go ahead and push through that transfer and then loan him back for a few months, and maybe that makes Leon happy. I honestly don't think it's that big of a need to go through all that hassle. I mean, I understand that we don't have anyone but Alonzo right now, but we've we've seen recently how we can kind of work around that issue with different formation ideas, with different players in that role, doing different things. So I don't think it's worth the effort to, you know, lose out on a transfer of Emerson that, you know, we've struggled to move on. And, you know, just make it more difficult on ourselves down the road. And, you know, when it was Lucas Digne, if, if that was just on loan, I'd be all for it. But the longer this went on, the more it seemed as though Everton wanted to sell him, which I don't really know why. I don't know why they're picking Rafa Benitez right now over this player, because that those are the two that have had this spat, especially because, you know, how long can Rafa really last there? He can't be much longer the way they're going and the way he's already viewed at Everton. So I'm really surprised they're trying to move the player on so aggressively right now because it really doesn't seem like – it seems like he could just wait it out and he'd be right back in Everton's starting lineup. Um, Yeah, I don't want him permanently because that's just going to create more issues later. We we have Ian Monson coming through the pipeline. Chilwell will come back, and when Chilwell comes back, he's the starter again. So that makes it incredibly hard to buy a player because they know in a few months Chilwell's coming back. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's unfortunate that we haven't done any business or really haven't even hinted at any business. But I, I'd rather. I'd rather work with what we've already got than go into January and just kind of panic and do things that are going to cause us more issues later. And it seems right now every deal kind of causes us more issues later. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, I've um, I've talked about my stance on Luca Dean before. I've actually got an article that will be out on the pride of by the time this podcast goes live. Um, and we've actually got a question that I'm going to talk about Luca Dean in later. So I won't dive too much into that, but I will say, I think that in the very limited performances that Emerson has had um, over the last few years, I thought he's actually played quite well. Uh, I, I don't know what it is. Maybe it's just me and liking Emerson, 
You know, he was quality for Italy when he stepped in this summer in the Euros. I thought he was good in his limited performances that the last season. So while he's not my number one option, I don't think it's worst case scenario. But like you said, I just worry about being able to sell him. But, you know, we might not have to worry about selling him if he comes in and plays well. You know, we've got Alonzo, who is 31 now. And in the summer, he will have one year left on his deal. So if Emerson plays well or if Tuchel's bringing him back, thinking that he has a future at Chelsea, maybe we look at Alonzo being sold this summer. So I don't know. It's it's a complicated situation. And I know everyone has different thoughts on it. So uh, while we won't be buying a left wing back, it looks like, the Chelsea board and Thomas Tuchel are really focusing in on a right wing back, it looks like, which they did this summer. There was a lot of interest in Adama Traore, who now, I guess if he moves, it'll probably be to Spurs once they get rid of guys like Steven Bergwijn. But uh, we're not going to dive into that because we are not a Tottenham podcast, but you know, the interest in bringing in a right wing back has been there. And we all assumed because of the timing and because Reese James played as a right center back to end last year that, oh, maybe Tuchel doesn't trust James as a right wing back. But I think we are now seeing that's not the case. He really just wanted some reinforcements. So um, there, there's really not much being floated out there right now. I know um, a Dujon Sterling a recall from loan. I think he's at Blackpool has been talked about. I think Blackpool might've even quote unquote set a deadline on that, which is laughable in and of itself. But, um, you know, this is someone who I, and I know um, other people at the pride of London touched on preseason as Dujon Sterling would have been an option at right wing back. I thought he played quite well. So, what are your thoughts on just going to get a right wing back? Do you think we need to look for someone of a starting caliber or just a backup for Reese James? I mean, I, I think it's going to be a backup for Reese James. Uh, even if James can play center back or can play midfield, I think everyone got really carried away with it being the end of the season last year, and that's where he's playing because yeah. it was really only like two or three games that he played there. And were it not at the end of the season, I don't think anyone would be saying, oh, well, James is a long-term center back option. We need a right wing back. I don't think that would have been the case. Um, and even if that were the case, the performances of James at wing back since then, you know, I don't I don't really think Tuchel is looking at Hakimi going to Paris and worrying too much about it anymore. Uh, we obviously need more than just Reese James there. and. You know, it's it's surprising to me the club is as interested in they are or seem to be in getting Dujon Sterling back, but not Ian Motson for the other side. I, I don't really understand that other than Sterling's a, a few years older. Uh, maybe he doesn't need the same minutes or isn't going to be expected to get the same minutes as Motson. I don't I don't really know what's going on there, but you know, I, I worry when I hear these rumors about Dest because, I mean, me and you are American. We've, we've seen Dest. I'm not impressed. 
at least not for a defender. He he would be a fantastic winger if someone would just let him be a winger. But he his defense is just terrible. And I mean, to me, there's really going to be little difference between playing Pulisic at wing back or Hudson Odoi wing back, and then buying Dest and playing him at wing back. I think that would be very panicky of us to go and get him. And I know his stats are very similar to Hakimi's. And it just it's not going to be enough for me. So, again, I would rather use the players we already have. I'd rather we recall Sterling and see what happens there than go out and make some panic by in January that, you know, arguably helps other clubs down the line more than it's going to help us. Yeah, I think the Serginho Dest rumors are really interesting. I'm kind of on the fence about that. You know, I'm not one of those people who absolutely drools over him when watching him play for the U.S. men's national team. Um, but I'm also not of the mindset that he would be a panic buy and that he's terrible in defense. I think if we're looking for a right back option, we need to stay away from Serginho Dest. But I think as a right wing back option, as a backup for Chelsea, we could certainly do a lot worse than the starting right back for Barcelona. Um, I think where it gets interesting with Dest is you take a look at the fact that at the club level for both Ajax and Barcelona, this is someone who has played as a right back. And as you mentioned earlier, he is a winger by trade. So I, I think that makes him ideal for the right wing back role. But then if you look at the U S men's national team, I know Greg Berhalter likes to use him as a left back. So maybe the club and Tuchel look at Serginho Dest as kind of a Jack of all trades. He can cover it left wing back and right wing back. I'm not sure. Um, I've just seen these rumors a little bit. I, I think I've seen that he wants to stay at Barcelona, which I mean, we can say what we can about their financial situation and we love to make fun of them and their league position and all that. But if I'm Serginho Dest, I'm going to stay at Barcelona where I'm the starting right back over joining Chelsea where he will be an occasional right wing back or left wing back. So that's where I stand with Dest. I, I'm kind of in the middle. I, I'm not just advocating that we go out and sign him under any circumstances like I do with uh, Luca Dean or Jules Koundé, but I don't hate the idea of Serginho Dest, you know, and for the, I think the price that was being quoted was around 20 million. So for that price, it's really not a bad option. I don't think. Well, I mean, he's actually not the starting right back at Barcelona anymore. Danny Elvis has come out from whatever, retirement home he was in and he is now the starter over him which i mean there's some old boys club stuff going on there with Xavi. maybe it's not worth reading into but i mean that the fact that a 38 year old going on 39 at wing back is starting over him is concerning to me um yeah maybe maybe he would be an okay wing back but can we guarantee that we're going to play wing back we can't even guarantee that next game anymore. So I, I, I'm just not that into it. Yeah, I know that makes sense, you know, but it, it, that 
at the same time there. Um, and I know you have to consider that he's on an expiring deal and he could leave in six months. But I think if Tuchel really had the intention of playing a back four long term, he would look at as Piliqueta and Reese James and even Trevor Chalaba, who's played some right back over the years and think, you know what? That's enough for the time being. So that's something to keep an eye on. Uh, and like I mentioned earlier, when we went into this window, we thought, wow, here, you know, we've got a lot of injuries and we've got a lot of issues. And I think Saul playing well has really lessened the need for a midfielder. But Fabrizio Romano has said a few times that, and I think other sources have said it as well, Chelsea's going to wait for those big deals. So do you think, um, kind of getting away from the wingbacks, do you think we need to bring in either a midfielder or a center back in this window? I still say go ahead and trigger that release clause for Kunde. Like It's not going to get cheaper. If anything, if you give them time to get rid of it, it's going to become like uh, Kepa Rizablaga's contract became. Real Madrid wanted them in January, but they didn't want to trigger the clause. And then as soon as January ended, Bilbao extended his contract and changed and brought the release clause up even higher. So we're the ones that got on the hook for that ultimately. Um, yeah, I, I would just go ahead and get Kunde, and we know we're going to need a center back. Even if Rudiger and Christensen extend, like it looks pretty certain that one of them won't, and we're still going to need a center back. So Silva's not going to be around forever, even though it feels like it right now. It's not going to get cheaper. If anything, it'll just get more expensive. So I say do it now, you know, and then maybe you can free up some of those other center backs for, you know, wing back or fullback spots. And you also get the benefit of he's here for six months where he can, you know, get used to the league. He can feel it out. And then next season he's ready to go. There's none of that having to feel things out going on. Uh, midfielder, with our formation being so up in the air, that's also hard to tell. But so long as Kovacic, Conte, Georgino, and Saul have some kind of fitness between them, we're okay. As long as three of them are fit, really, we're okay. You know, we can rotate them in and out. They're all relatively trustworthy at this point. And Loftus Cheek is still around too if he needs to fill in. So I'm not too concerned about that one yet. Uh, and also, you're not going to get a midfielder that's going to get anywhere close to those guys in January to begin with. So. Yeah, for sure. And the rumors have it that Chelsea's going to go after a big splash in midfield um, at in, in the summer, whether it be a Declan Rice or an Aurelian Tuchemeni, just someone of that caliber. And I think for that reason and Saul's uh, better performances alone, I think we can wait on midfielders, but I'm of the same camp as you. I think we need a center back in. I've said it. I thought we should have bought Kunde in the summer. I'm still going to ring that Kunde bell. And, you know, I've, I've had an article in the drafts. I'm just, I'm really just waiting for Chelsea to do it. I, one thing I will say is I don't think it'll get more expensive in the sense that he will extend. I think he's publicly stated that he's not going to extend or it's, it's widely known. He's not going to, he wants to go somewhere else. And I think he was kind of pissed off at Sevilla for not letting him go to Chelsea. So this move really just feels like a when, not an if. 
And, you know, if I'm Chelsea, like you said, I just, just pay the clause. He's someone that can be so important to us and he's got experience at right back and who knows, maybe he's even got the qualities to step in at wing back if need be. So I, I think he would solve multiple issues in one. So that's just my two cents. I'm not going to ramble on about Jules Kounde much longer. So um, jumping into the Carabao Cup again, we've got the second semifinal coming up um, later this week. We have Tottenham again at Spurs. So there's really some interesting talking points here. Um, so before I ask more specific questions on that, what, what are the things that you're going to look for in this game? Yeah, basically, are we going to do our hybrid four of the back, five of the back, three of the back thing again? Or are we just going to do our usual 3-4-3 three, three and trust that we can hold a 2-0 lead? You know, 2-0 is the most dangerous lead to hold. And with no away goals, you know, it's very easy for this scale to tip here. Um, you know, as for Spurs, you know, Conte's – He's pretty much used everyone at Spurs now, and he's tried three four three. He's tried three five two, and you know it seems like he's really struggling to figure out who he's going to end up using. And if you know someone is injured, that kind of forces him into that three five two, and you know he's got a lot of success with that, especially lately with Inter Milan. Um. But, you know, can, can he get the space he needs to make that formation work against us? Will we give him that kind of space? And I guess that depends on, you know, how much do we rotate with City coming, knowing that the league is pretty much a dead dead in the water kind of deal, but we're still going to want to show up against City. So, yeah, it'll be really interesting to see, you know, what Spurs do in reaction to it, what we do. In reaction to it, you know, whether we just try to hold it and look ahead to City or whether we try to really go at them again. Yeah, and those, I mean, you basically um, answered my questions before I could even ask them. So I, I had written down, I had, how will Chelsea play? You know, what approach will they take in the formation? So I think, like you said, it 2-0 is a really dangerous lead. And especially on the road, um, I know the the joke is three point lane instead of White Hart Lane, but other than the name being Tottenham Hotspur Stadium now, um, this is a Tottenham team with success recently for coming back. You know, Ajax had them dead in the water in that Champions League semifinal, and they came back from that. And that was Lucas Mora was a large part of that, and I think we'll see him again this week along with Harry Kane. So while I think you do need to have trust in your players to hold that lead. I don't think that you can sit back and just say, you know what, we've got a 2-0 lead. I think you have to play the Chelsea way and the way that Tuchel's played. You know, no one manages um, two-legged ties better than Tuchel. Um, He's just, the way he manages is perfectly built for this. So I don't think we sit back. I think we see a lot of what we saw in the first leg. I just think you see more urgency from Spurs, whether or not they can break us down. I don't know. I would feel if it were me personally, I would go with a three, four, three or a three, five, two, preferably a three, five, two. And I would play my best starting 11 
even with City at the weekend. And I think the best starting 11 could go two games in a row, but I would go with my best 11, given the importance of this. We've already got one trophy this season. I think without sounding too cocky, I think the Club World Cup is another trophy that as long as we actually try for, it's in the bag. So now you're looking at Chelsea being two games away from a treble. So, and that's not even including the Champions League or the FA Cup. So I think it's really important. I love to win. I love to win trophies. So we will, I I think we'll come out and take matters into our own hands. I, I don't think we will leave it up to Spurs to break us down. Yeah, and I mean, <clears throat> I guess it comes down to like, who does this really mean more to right now? Like, is is this the trophy Conte wants to hang his hat on at Tottenham? And I mean, I've long argued that Tottenham shouldn't be picky about any trophy at this point. But you know, if Conte's looking at the full picture of things, they're not in top four. They really need to grind it out to get to top four. They struggled in the FA Cup uh, over the weekend. They don't have anything European to deal with. So, you know, is it really worth it going into a Carabao Cup final against, who is it, Liverpool or Arsenal or the other side of it? So, I don't know. He, he's just going to have to pick his battles for this one. And, Ultimately, I think Tuchel's going to do something like what he did with the Porto game, where we're, we're trying to be competitive, but we're not going to overextend ourselves to do it. And yeah, City, City's on the horizon. Even if we can't really catch them, I think it's going to be really important to Tuchel after the month that we just had to at least give City a go and show them that even if we're not going to hunt them down, we are hunting them. And Spurs is just in the way of that right now. Yeah, for sure. And I I think you made a really interesting point with the Porto game and the Porto second leg. Um, You know, while that's one of the games that we didn't necessarily play well in last year, we went in with a two nil lead um, and, that game, there, there just wasn't much intent from Chelsea. We weren't going to have guys like Rudiger barrel forward or Azpilicueta barrel forward. And so I don't think we'll see that in this game either. I think we'll try and hold a lot of possession. I just don't think that Tuchel will put us in a position to be susceptible to a counterattack because we obviously know that's how Conte wants to play and that's how Spurs will hit us out. I don't think Spurs will come out expecting to control 70% of the ball. So I think we'll still control a lot of possession. I think we'll um, leave it up to our players how this one shakes out. But I don't think, like you said, we're we're not going to really go for it. Um, We might for the first few minutes see if we can kill the tie off early because at 3-0, it's not going to happen for Spurs. But it's definitely interesting to see how these two tactical minds will go at it and Probably the best part is the fact that this is only the second installment of three games um, with these two better rivals and two excellent managers. So that'll do it for our Spurs recap as well. So 
Um, after a short break, we just have a few fan questions to get to. So stay tuned and we will be right back. All righty. Welcome back, everyone. Thanks for sticking with us. So we've got three fan questions to get to. Um, the first of which comes from Krishna, good friend of the podcast. He asks, will Ben Chilwell and Federico Chiesa's um, injuries help them come back as the same players, seeing as they rely on speed and quick turns, or will these ACL injuries impact them? So, um, Travis, I know you've played the game. I know neither of us are doctors, but what are your two cents on on that question? Yeah, I mean, that whole neither of us are doctors thing is important, but lots of players injure their ACL, and provided it's treated well and they get whatever surgery they need, usually they'll come back as they were eventually, basically. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking of Kurt Zuma when he did his, and that first season back, he wasn't really Kurt Zuma. The second season, he was a little closer, and then by the third season after it, he was you know just right back where he was, if not better. Um, Osvaldo Quetta, he did his ACL back when he was in France. And I mean, obviously, most of us probably wouldn't have watched him back then. But, you know, you can't really tell that from a player who's playing 38 games a season, you know, how, how his knees are doing. Um, the only real concern is, you know, rushing them back before it's fully healed. Like, realistically, we shouldn't see Ben Chilwell this season. We shouldn't see. Um, anyone that does their ACL for the rest of the season. Um, the only other concern is usually once you've done one, the other one's a little more likely. But as as long as we we're just careful about it and you know take our time with it, I, I think it'll be okay. It's the injuries more like the ones Lafitte had or Colin Hudson Odoi had with your Achilles. Those are a lot harder to gauge how players are going to come back from when they rely on, you know, explosiveness and speed. And, you know, I think Hudson Odo has come back really well from it, but he's not, he, he's not quite the same like lights out player that he used to be, you know, just beating players like it was not nothing. And Lafayette Cheek has never really been quick, but he's, you can definitely tell he's even slower than he was. So that would be more of a concern. ACL injuries, we've got that kind of pretty figured out by now. It's just a matter of how long it's going to take and how long Chelsea's going to wait for it to take. Yeah, and one thing I will say just to answer the question kind of directly, I think Chiesa will be impacted by his ACL injury more. Um more than Chilwell, but at the same time, I don't think Chelsea and Juventus fans can expect the same player to come back right away. You have to be patient, as guys like Callum Hudson-Odoi and Ruben Loftus-Cheek have shown. You know, Loftus-Cheek this year in his performances has been significantly better than last year when he was at Fulham, and we've seen Callum Hudson-Odoi come back, and once again, as you mentioned, I know these aren't ACL injuries, but they're serious muscle tears. Um, and Callum Hudson-Roy is just getting back to his best. So I think, and this kind of ties into me wanting a longer-term replacement like Luka Dean at left wing back. I think those are the reasons why 
um, we need someone like that because we can't expect Chilwell to come back and just whip back up into shape and be ready to go and look like he never skipped the beat. So uh, I think patience is required for both of them, but I think in the long run, they'll both be fine given they're both young, but I, I would take more caution with Chiesa than Chilwell given the position he plays. No, just our, real, just yeah, real yeah. quick. Just honestly, the worst thing to get over isn't the actual injury. It's getting out of your own head about the injury. You know, I hurt my ankle really badly a few years ago. And, you know, if I run now, which isn't nearly as often as it used to be, if I feel any pain in it, I'm immediately like, I need to stop. I can't keep going because I don't want to hurt it again. And, you know, most of the time it's completely fine. It's surely healed. But there's just that little thing in my head like, oh, I feel this weird twinge here. I need to stop. And, you know, if you're relying on a sport where you're turning constantly, you know, if you're afraid to take that turn, all of a sudden you're not the player you used to be when you did make that turn. So that's that's probably what takes longer to get over than anything else is just getting over that, you know, it has healed. I can now trust it. And, you know, just pushing it to the right level that it can actually go and, you know, not pushing it too quickly, not pushing it too slowly, just trying to get out of your own head about it. Yeah. And I can see the responses right away being, well, Travis, you weren't a world-class athlete. You're not a professional soccer player, but I think at the core of it, not at all. Yeah. I think at the core of it, it's important because the one thing that we have in common with Ben Chilwell is we're all human beings so that's going to be natural to anyone. And I think that's one of the underrated aspects. And I'm glad you brought that up is just the mental health of players, you know, and that doesn't just relate to stuff like depression, all that. It's also the fear of re-injuring yourself. And so that, that's just part of being human. And that's, that's one really important factor that we don't consider as uh, writers and fans of all these players. We want to see them back at their best right away. But, you know, as a human, we have to sympathize with those players because of those types of things. So our second question and third question come from another good friend of our podcast, uh, RJ. He asks, firstly, uh, if you could only sign one player in this window, who would it be and why? So we'll keep this one relatively short. Travis, your floor is yours for this one. Yeah, I'm, I'm still just bring Kunde in and leave it there. And everything else will figure itself out around him. Yeah, I'm I'm of the same mindset. I I can't really pick between Kunde and Luca Dean. I think because I've been a fan of his for longer, I'll say Jules Kunde. Um, and as for the why, we went in depth on that earlier. So um, yeah, it, across the board, Jules Kunde from both of us for a multitude of reasons. Um, the second question and from RJ, third question and final question overall is, have recent formation changes given you a different perspective on how we should approach future matches or is this just temporary based on injury? I think it's temporary based on injury at the back in our whole that that hybrid thing we did with four at the back and three at the back, I think that's based on injury. We've seen this season when Lukaku's fit, 
And when Timo Werner's fit, we're usually playing two up top. So my thought process would be if when those two guys are fit, that they're starting and we're playing two up top, do we need other options at striker to be able to do that when they're not fit? And right now, only Kai Havertz really seems like an option with either of them. So, you know, maybe we do need more strikers sooner rather than later. Tuchel at PSG used strikers, two strikers a lot. Um, obviously, I mean, you would when you have guys like Neymar and Mbappe and Cavani and Icardi. Like you, you have to fit them all in somehow. Um, but it does seem like he's kind of leaning towards two strikers being away, being a comeback. And that's not unusual because he's one of the Ragnet guys and they all like two strikers. You know, Nagelsmann likes two strikers. A, a week ago when Ragnick was trying 4-2-2-2 at Manchester United, everyone was saying, like, why is he trying to reinvent the game? And then a week later, Tuchel does it, and everyone thinks it's the greatest thing ever. It's the same thing. It's it's literally the same stuff. It's just the players you have to do it. And so long as we have Timo and Lukaku, we can do it. But do we need players to be able to do it when we don't have those guys? Yeah, I think it's all going to – come down to who's healthy. So just to answer RJ's question, I, like you said, I think it is really just temporary based on injury. But I think, like I said earlier in the podcast, it opens up opportunities and um, different options for us going forward. As for the striker dilemma um, that you just mentioned, that's something that I really think we are going to have to, uh, identify in the summer, you know, do we need these guys that don't play all that much like the Hockham ZHs or maybe even Christian Pulisic's of the world uh, if we're going to play a 3-5-2 or whatever, whatever two going forward. So I think that's that's a big question in the summer is you've got guys like Armando Broja who will be coming back. Like, will he come back into the fold um, just long-term people like Tammy Abraham. So I think, you know, as we've said in podcasts before, and as we continue to state the three, five, two is ultimately the dream from Thomas Tuchel, I think. And I think it gets the best out of our strikers, as you mentioned earlier. Yeah. I mean, it, it does, it does seem like three five two is his way to go. When Timo's been fit, when Lukaku's been fit, they've generally both started. You know, Kai Havertz has kind of played up there a little bit. Pulisic's played up there a little bit, but that just seems to be because Tuchel uses him everywhere. And, yeah, I mean, it, it's really just going to be a matter of, you know, what do we really think we're going to do going forward here? And – in a weird way, for the first time, we have a manager that we haven't actually considered that for. You know, Frank Lampard really seemed to want to do four two three one, or at least four three three, and we got the depth for it. But then a few months later, we have Tuchel, and the depth all that changes. So, you know, if we're staying back three, do we need more center backs? If we go to a back four, do we need different center backs and not necessarily more of them? And it's just all these questions up in the air, which is why it's so hard to decide, do we need a wing back this 
window because in six months, if they're a fullback and we can't use them, that's a problem. And that's why I think uh, the possibility of Tuchel staying long-term is really exciting as a fan of this team because maybe we will finally see the manager that stays long-term and we get to build an identity under him. You know, you look at the Pep Guardiola's and the Jurgen Klopp's um, and those teams have an identity, but then you look at the Manchester United's, the Tottenham's and the Chelsea's and, you know, we've just kind of got this collection of great players and we don't really know where to use some of them. And some of them always seem on their way out. So it's like you said, it's, it's going to be going to be interesting to see over the next few months and fingers crossed that Thomas Tuchel is still going to be here come the summer and he gets to sit down with the board and have those discussions because it'd be really exciting. So that'll do it for us this week. Um, thanks for tuning in for some great discussions as always be sure to check out all of our content on the pride of london.com follow us on social media the pride of london on facebook um, you can find me on twitter at gabe h sports you can follow the pride of london on twitter at pride of london and you can also find travis on twitter as well yep, you can find me at at Traftical. so we will see you guys next week hopefully celebrating some more big chelsea wins in january